I'm very grateful myself for <coughs> the people in this church who've been praying in recent weeks for my wife, Julia, recovering from surgery. We've really felt it. Young Harry, he's gone, but... Oh, there you are. It's your moment of fame, okay? Two weeks ago, he said, how's Julia? I said, she's over there. Have a look-see. Well, she's looking very well. I said, yes, she's got a good nurse. Why, have you hired somebody in, he said. <laughs> you will need a good nurse, my friend, if you go on like that. Joy here. Stand for a moment. Going back to Zimbabwe on Thursday for four weeks. Fifteen years, Southport Hospital, high dependency unit, every patient seriously or critically ill through COVID, through the heat of COVID, before the vaccination, many people dying without their loved ones able to be with them, in stifling heat, in full protective gear, subsequently in the aftermath, many nurses going off through stress, those continuing having more work and more stress. If any person in this congregation needs a month's holiday, it's joy. Pray that she has it. She goes back to a nation where Julia and myself met and married years ago, but today it's a nation with great needs, Zimbabwe. Her immediate family, her wider family, and all around. A person can work in the heat of the day for one month if they're fortunate enough to have a job. They will earn probably the equivalent of one 20-pound note in this country when it's turned into Zim dollars. Huge need. And I know that Joy's working tonight, so she's got to go straight home after this meeting. But if one or two of us just managed to find a £5 or a £10 or a £20 note, she would have the great joy of helping people in their need, and we would have the assurance that it was going straight to that point of need. So that's an invitation. Bless you, dear. Three passages of scripture. No prizes for telling me the connection. We're in Leviticus 10 and verse 1 to 3. And it reads as follows. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. To Samuel and chapter 6. Remember last week we read from Hebrews. You haven't got one God in the Old Testament and one God in the New. He's the same God. We read in Hebrews last week, we're to reverence Worship God with reverence and with awe because our God is a consuming fire. Now we're in 2 Samuel and 6 verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men 30,000 in all. 
he and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new ark with the ark, new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs, harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took a hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burnt against Uzzah because of his irreverence, his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there before the ark of God. Acts and chapter 5 and verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to me, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. After three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these things. I'm talking about three sudden, unexpected, terrifying, indiscriminate acts of God's judgment. Yes, sudden, yes, unexpected, yes, terrifying, but not indiscriminate, not random. On each of these occasions, God was bringing his children to embark upon, to enter in a new chapter in their lives. And it was absolutely essential in this new chapter that the people of God had a fear of God, a holy, reverent, healthy fear for their own safety and their own well-being. When God handpicked and chose Aaron and his sons to be priests to stand between God and the people, 
It was a huge privilege. But we know with every privilege comes corresponding responsibility. And they were to represent to the people a God who commanded and demanded to be obeyed. That was not an optional extra. You write to King Charles today, you'll have a letter back from one of the secretaries, it'll read like this, His Majesty the King has commanded me to thank you. If you're a king, you can command and you do. You don't make suggestions if you feel like it, if you get round to it. The king of king will command. And something might not seem to matter very much to us, but it matters to God whether we obey God or not. The people needed to know that. It was the idea that God had planted in David's head. He gave the idea to David and inspired David to do what? To bring the Ark of the Covenant and set it in the temple in the city of Jerusalem and it would be the heart of the nation's worship. So they did it in style. We read about it. If you want to know how many 30,000 people are, see a stadium full of people of that size or see them exiting that, sta that stadium. It's a lot of people. If you want to know how many 45,000 people are, watch 45,000 people scream out of a football stadium. That's how many people were killed in the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. It's huge, the numbers. On a picture of these 30,000 people, imagine 30,000 out of Anfield Liverpool supporters that just put seven past their nearest rivals. That's how these people were. They were making whoopee. They were celebrating. They were singing and shouting. But the procession and all the joy ground to a halt. And we read why. And it wasn't just the procession stopped, that those who saw what happened, their hearts nearly stopped beating at that moment. And when people shuffled to a halt and the news spread why it had happened, a chill came and drove away the mood of celebration. Why? I'll tell you why. Because God in his word had declared when the holy things, including the ark, were to be moved, they were to be carried on the shoulders of the Kohathites, a tribe that was set apart with that sacred duty. Well, we put it on a new cart. The subtlety is that when they rescued the ark from the Philistines earlier in their history, it was on a cart, and that was fine, before the word of God came. That's the subtle danger. God says, you strike the rock, Moses, it'll bring forth water for the people. He did, and the water flew. The next time, God said, you speak to the rock, but Moses lost his rag, and he vented his fury, failed to represent the heart of the God, and instead of speaking, he crushed it, he brought the water, and he forfeited his lifelong ambition and his destiny to lead the people of God into the promised land. Ananias and Sapphira were part of the first church. The church never grew so quickly. That early church was stretching its wings and flying high right from the beginning. These were the people very shortly afterwards designated as those who were turning the known world upside down. That's a surprise. 
You think they had their Bible studies and their everyday with Jesus notes in the morning? They didn't have a Bible. We think Bible studies are essential for our spiritual growth. It is. The New Testament hadn't been written. The Old Testament on scrolls in the synagogues and the temple. Most of them couldn't read. How come they flourished? I'll tell you one key phrase. It says they met in one another's homes to encourage one another, to share testimony, to pray for one another, to hear of answered prayer. They shared life. Pray God this is a relationship-centered church, not a meeting-centered. We do meet together. Thank God for those who put on hospitality so we can build bricks of relationships. Thank God for small groups so we can get, thank God that we share life. We get a buoyancy from one another like the wild geese that fly overhead and that vast distance. And they could perhaps have put us to shame, these people. They didn't just share life, they shared their possessions. And those with property that they weren't using were willing to sell it and share the proceeds. That little child, anyone got a two-year-old, oh, how are you there, grabs a toy and says, mine. And you say, no, you must share, you must share. Ever say that to your kids? No, you don't. <laughs> it's going to be like father-like children in that family. <laughs> and these people with the property, they say, well, that was their nest egg for the future. Yeah, but they trusted God for the future. And they came and gave the proceeds. Now, the trouble with Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted the full plaudits, the full applause, as those who had brought everything, but in fact, they kept something back. And Peter says, you lying, not just to me, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes if you didn't know that. And they both died. And the new church learned that God was not a God to be messed around with. And a great fear came upon the church, a healthy fear. I say this guardedly, I wouldn't mind if people were frightened to come in this building because on a Sunday morning or the first Wednesday of a month, what happened in this building was so dynamic, so supernatural, so full of miracles, so full of the presence of God, that people say, I'm not, you told me about a friend, said, I'm not going to hear Billy Graham at Anfield because he told me to change my life. He was a wise man. He kept away. That's what the new church, the new formed New Testament church needed, and that's what God's judgment brought to them. If I'm talking about the holiness of God today, I'm talking about a burning, blazing, searing, white-hot purity that we can't imagine, we can't visualize, we can't find wise words to describe it. Maybe we can just get a glimpse of it as we have a glimpse of it in Scripture. You go out today, the sun's out. Go out of this building and look the sun face to face into your sun. You'll see your eyes. You say, I can look at the moon. Yes, as the moon is to the sun, the sun is to God in all his blazing holiness. If we could just conceive it and get our eyes around it. It says about Moses... 
When God talked to Moses, he talked face to face as a friend talks to a friend. That's intimacy. Moses designated a friend of God. You know, Moses went up on that holy mountain and conversed with God. On any other member of the people of Israel, or even with the livestock, put one tread on the foothills of that mountain, they were dead. But Moses had that privilege. And yet when Moses said, God, will you show me my, your glory? God said this, no man can look in my face and live to tell the tale. The holiness of God is beyond the scope of our minds. But we catch glimpses of Isaiah had this vision of God high and lifted up upon a throne. His train filled the temple. The angels all around were singing, holy, holy, holy. And he cried out, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm lost. He saw himself for what he was by comparison. That's the effect of glimpsing the holiness of God. He saw his wretchedness. Job, through all his experiences, metaphorically anyway, he had a vision of God at the end, and he says, now I see you with my eyes, and I repent, despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. I'll tell you this. If God revealed his holiness to us in this building right now, every shred, every whisper of self-righteousness or pride would be scorched out of us by comparison because of what we have seen. The one nearest to Jesus when Jesus was alive upon the earth, the Apostle John, you know, it says, John rested his head on the shoulder of the master. That's intimacy. John was invited up on the mountain and saw the veil lifted. And the face of Jesus shining like the sun and his clothes whiter than light. He knew that Jesus, and he knew Jesus better than any man. But when on the Isle of Patmos... He saw the lion of the tribe of Judah resurrected, ascended, enthroned, glorified. What happened then? Down on the floor as a dead man he was because he'd seen God in all his splendor. We grasp him and groping to try to capture something. Light has two purposes. Light has one purpose to drive out darkness and it always will. In our house, we have an open log fire in the lounge, always scavenging or scrounging wood. And it means that if we're in the lounge and it's a dark evening and there's a blackout, pitch black, pitch dark, I know on the mantelpiece, if I can grope to it, box of matches, strike one match, the darkness is gone. There's a candle on that mantelpiece, light the candle, and I've got light instead of darkness. But darkness has another purpose. It doesn't just drive out darkness, it reveals darkness. It exposes darkness. That's why we talk about spring cleaning. 
It's this time of the year when the sun is shining through those windows need to clean. We see in the brightness of the spring sunshine, we see the dust, the dirt, the grime, the grubbage. I said, my car needs a wash. Yes, it did yesterday, but I only just saw it today with the sun shining on it. Imagine waking up and everything is blanketed with pristine white snow and the sun comes out, it's bright, and you put your washing out. And then you realize with the washing on the line, that white sheet, those white pillowcases, that white shirt, those white handkerchiefs, they're tinged with gray. It's true. They're not personal white at all. Because the light will reveal to us the doctor. Now, when we find Jesus, God in his mercy and his love, he doesn't just fling the curtains wide open so we see all the light and we see ourselves, we'd be appalled if we saw ourselves in that light. So God in his love will open the curtains gently, gradually. And we'll see something, something maybe a way of thinking, a way of speaking, a way of acting, a way of reacting. We've never thought twice about it. It's just part of us and that's fine. And suddenly we'll see now, this is something I need to change. This is not like Jesus. Little bit by little bit, the finger of God will come up. When the finger of God comes upon something I've said or done, I lose my peace. It goes out of the window. God is saying, another area to change. I found Jesus as a process. I can't give you the month, the week, the day, the hour. I can tell you the year and the season. And I reached out to this Jesus I'd heard about and found him in my own experience. He became my invisible friend. And probably for a year, I'm not commending this, I'm not proud of this, but for a year afterwards, probably, still smoking heavily, still drinking too much, still swearing like a trooper, not blaspheming, but swearing. But those were the externals in my life. God was dealing with me inside, softening me, changing my value system. And I had a few missionaries around where I was living. I'm grateful not any of them came along and said, now you, you better stop that, you better change that. They let God be his own interpreter to do his work in his way and his time. And after about 12 months, I would light a cigarette, and then suddenly my peace was gone. I thought, uh-uh, he wants me to quit. Now, Jeff testifies that God took away his desire for cigarettes in a moment of time, and I struggled for month after month after month, whittling it down, whittling it down. In the end, the time I craved most was after meals. So we had a paraffin fridge, we kept chocolate in the fridge, preferably dark chocolate. Instead of having a cigarette, I had chocolate. It means today I'm a chocoholic instead of a nicotine addict. Okay. <laughs> and just because I strike doesn't, you need to know, Mr. Grice, that God does not have favorites, okay? And if he did, you wouldn't be one, okay. <laughs> So the problem is, hear me, I'm being serious. Sometimes the more we progress on this Christian path, we seem to be going backwards, not forwards. Regression, not progression, because we're seeing more and more of sin and more and more of self in us, which needs to change. Anyone had that experience? But that's a sign of progress. It's called sanctification. Little bit by little bit. 
We're being changed to be more and more like Jesus. Sometimes, of course, God does something suddenly, dramatically. I hesitate to talk about experiences because you have an experience of God, it probably means you needed it more than others. And I hear some experience I sound like that for myself. Well, let me mention two experiences. Early, well, 1970s, first Friday of the month, a house of a lady called Doreen Lyle, a little group, four or five, we prayed every month. We prayed for revival. I was a very young Christian, but I read the revivals and my heart burned to see it happening. I realized at that stage that this nation is going to head for revival, and if we don't have revival on a large scale, it's going to be judgment on a large scale. The, the stakes are huge and high. We've got to turn back to God. And on one of those occasions, started like any other Friday evening, suddenly God was in the place. I can't explain it, like a veil was lifted. I hit the deck quicker than I've ever moved in my life. I remember thinking I'd like to bury my face deeper into the pile of the carpet. I remember that feeling. And it wasn't terrifying, it was exhilarating. God was in the room. The veil between God and ourselves and heaven and earth is very thin. God could just move that veil in any Sunday morning gathering, first Wednesday of the month gathering. We'd be down as far as it was possible for us to go. No question of anybody getting up to minister from the mic. The only sound perhaps are people crying to God for mercy. That's what God can do. And pray God he does it. He can shine his light and presence himself like that. The other experience I had was Boundary Street Mission, Saturday afternoon, maybe less than two dozen there. The preacher, if you've ever read Roy Hessian's, uh, the book is called, Julie will help me, Calvary Road, really exposing the self-life. And I sat there, and as this man spoke, I saw myself, hear me, at my most spiritual. I saw myself sitting on a small wooden table in the private chapel of Scarsby Hall School, ministering to the Christian Fellowship every week. I saw myself standing on a Tuesday night in Canning Road Chapel and praying aloud, and I saw so much self in me and so much of the flesh so much carnality while I was doing that, concerned about what other people were thinking about me. I'm glad he's there to see me being used of God. I just buried my head in my hands and I wept and I wept. I think a couple of people put their hand on my shoulder. But I had to weep it out because I saw myself Folks, we need to live our lives before an audience of one, and that is God. If we're in bondage to other people's opinion, that needs to be snapped. The only reputation which we need to be bothered about is our reputation in God's eyes, if we can see it. And we need all of us a healthy, wholesome, reverence, fear of God. Fear of disobeying God. 
fear of discipline. It's not a craven fear. The knowledge of his love for us drives out all fear. If you fear God, you need fear nothing else in life. You tell the child, don't go near that fire and don't touch anything by that fire. It's to protect them. It's that kind of fear. If we love Jesus, our fear will not be he's going to zap us and, and discipline us and punish him. If we love him, our fear will be lest we disappoint him. Lest we grieve the Spirit of God. I love this girl more every year I've lived with this girl, but my fear is not of Julia. My fear is that I might let her down. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? That I might sadden her life. That's our fear. If we're wise, we'll fear that the day ever comes we're like Jonah speaking to the sailors and he had to say, it is because of me. This storm has come upon you, those I love most and those who love me most. That's a worthwhile fear and a healthy fear and a reverent fear. We live a life of holiness. We need to live keeping short accounts with God, quick to say sorry. We need to stop and quit justifying ourselves and excusing ourselves. Well, that's just the way I am. That's the way I've always been. That runs in the family. We need to quit. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. I spent two years. Two years before the day came. When I gave my life lock, stock and barrels of God, got out of the driving seat, yielded my independence, was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And one of the characteristics of being in the wilderness, I remember it, you find yourself saying, well, what's wrong with a Christian doing this? <laughs> Tell you what's wrong, your attitude's wrong. We need to recognize that. We need to realize that God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin because God doesn't have a blind eye. We need to understand Ecclesiastes 8.3 because sentence against an evil deed is not speedily executed the hearts of the sons of men are fully set to do evil because we seem to get away with it. No instant retribution, fine. Maybe God didn't notice or doesn't. Winnilunga Secondary School, Northwest Zambia, it was Good Friday. One of the expat teachers, trying to be clever, I think, walked around the site, arms out. What a way to spend Easter, he said. I just felt a sense of uneasiness. I'm not saying cause and effect, but he was dead in three years. We need to realize that we have a God and we dare not, and we cannot mock that God. I suppose many times in this course of studies, we'll come to 1 Peter 18. Just as he who called you, says God, is holy, so be holy in all you do. Be holy, says God, because I am holy. That's the call, with his help, by his grace, holy throughout our lives. Can I say God wants us to be holy to our fingertips? You say, why that? 
because it's our fingertips which are going to click on or click off what I watch on my computer screen and are going to switch on or switch off or switch over what I watch on my television screen. And what I watch is what I can pollute my brain with and make it very unholy if I'm not careful. The battles won or lost on the fingertips. I saw a series of photographs 60 years ago. It took me 30 seconds to see those photographs and they're still imprinted in my memory. We need to watch what we watch. And our fingertips, incidentally, change off the subject a little bit, will determine how many acres of time we waste every week in front of one of two of those screens. He wants us to be holy to our fingertips. And he wants us to be young people holy in as far as we dare to be different. David told us that we are God's alternative society. We're God's demonstration model. People should look at us and want what they see in us. And we need to dare to be different. Holiness is attractive. Another story. Sorry if I embarrass you. New secondary school, 105 students, five teachers, one Zambian head, four the rest of us, one quit after a term, couldn't hack the African bush. But one of those teachers was a man called Brian Bentley. He was a born-again Christian. He was the son of a missionary. Morning break, one teacher outside on break duty, four in the staff room having our coffee. I don't know how he got there. A travel brochure. And there is town, and there is car roads, and there is telephones, and there is electricity. There is normally up to 300 miles away, and there's a travel magazine on the staff room table with a very attractive girl in a bikini. So I'm here, Brian Bentley's actually. I push the picture in front of Brian, and I say, Brian, I'm not a Christian, but I'm staying. I say, Brian, how would you like to sleep with her? And he paused, and he looked me in the eye. He said, I wouldn't, John, unless I was married to her. And I took him to the cleaners. I laughed and I laughed. I asked him who he thought he was kidding. I said, live in the real world. Are you trying to tell us these other two teachers were very interested in this exchange? Are you trying to tell us if he came and knocked on your door at night, you just sent her away? <laughs> he said, again, I wouldn't. I sneered, young people, I sneered with my lips but I respect it in my heart. Which would you prefer? And part of my heart ended it because he had the courage of his conviction. And looking back, hear me, he had no idea that test was going to come. Looking back, that day and that moment, I took two steps nearer the kingdom of God. And if he compromised and said, yes, I'll run away the clever any time, or I'll have put in, I'd have taken six steps back and said, well, they're no different than me. Holiness makes us willing to be different. Boarding school education for me, chapel six times a week, all the gentle, amplified version, chants and psalms, boring, dusty, heavy, irrelevant, six times a week, Matthews and even song on Sundays. Religious, religious people and I designated them wet, weedy, mangy, pandy, I left school, thought if that's gone, I threw the baby out with the bath water, I don't want to know it. 
One of the people found faith when he left school, he said they had just enough religion at school to immunize us against the real thing, which is relationship with Jesus. But I give them credit, they read the Bible every time they had trouble. The trouble in my heart was like stone, like granite. But there's one passage in the Bible I'll never forget. I don't think any person who went to that school will ever forget it because on the last chapel service, of every term, the headmaster read these scriptures to us. If you were leaving because you were in the upper six and it was a summer term, that would be the last chapel service you have ever attended in your life and the last time you heard these words properly written or read to you. Very poetic, Job chapter 28. The writer says, Where can I find wisdom? Where is the place of understanding? He searches high and low and can't find it. But then he concludes, well, God knows the way to it. God understands the way to well. Only God knows, and God gave him the answer. Job 28, 28, if I had a bit of sense, I realized in that one verse, there was a foundation upon which to build a successful, God-breathing life. It meant nothing at the time. But the words of these, Behold, says the Lord, the fear of the Lord, that a holy, reverent, healthy fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that is understanding. Because of the holiness of God, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. And I rest my case and I'm ask the bishop to come up and I'm going to ask him to be quiet, reflect, speak to God silently if we need to.